This episode contains particularly graphic descriptions of both torture and murder. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already If you're a fan of true crime, you'll be familiar with the infamous pairings of Paul Bernardo and Carla Holmoka, Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate, Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez, and of course, Bonnie and Clyde. In no way do we want to romanticize the heinous behavior of criminal couples. But what is it about two ill-fated individuals who gravitate towards each other, bonding over the most horrible things one human can do to another? Would the more submissive party offend without their partner? Who influences whom? Or is it a case of a perfect storm? Patrick Allen Salapak was born October 17, 1978, and grew up in Chesterfield Township. In June of 2005, the then 27-year-old was released from the Ionia Correctional Facility after serving almost eight years for armed robbery, larceny, and charges of escaping prison. He would be on parole for the next two years. Two months after his release, Patrick met 19-year-old Samantha Baczynski online, and the pair began dating a few weeks later. Samantha Jean Baczynski was born May 28, 1986, and grew up in Midland. She spent her elementary school years in the Imlay City area, but from 8th grade until her junior year, the Baczynski family lived in Lapeer County. Samantha had dreams of becoming a nurse. In her senior year, she split her time between Imlay City High School and the Lapeer County Education and Technology Center in Attica, where she studied health occupations. In her spare time, she enjoyed participating in the school's drama club. In 2004, she graduated with a 3.0 GPA, and her classmates remembered her as being quiet and a really nice person. When Patrick and Samantha finally met, Patrick was up front. He told her he'd done time in prison before they got together. The couple lived with Samantha's mother, Cindy, and Cindy's boyfriend, Carlos. The first heady months of the young couple's relationship were cut short when Patrick was taken into custody in November of 2005. This arose out of a report made by a former girlfriend of Patrick's. She said that in the previous month he'd assaulted her. The woman alleged that Patrick grabbed her by the hair, pulled her into his car, and slammed her head into the vehicle's center console in the process. As she tried to escape, Patrick grabbed her around the neck, placing her in a headlock and stuffing sand into her mouth to keep her from screaming. Patrick was arrested, he was taken to Jackson Prison, and his parole officer was notified. He ended up being held for more than 45 days without a parole review hearing being scheduled. So they had to place him back on parole and release him in January of 2006. Patrick did plead guilty to the domestic violence charge, and instead of serving an additional two months in jail, his time already served was considered. And listeners, if you're thinking it's odd that Patrick was released simply because his parole review wasn't scheduled in a timely way, you're right. We'll be getting into that a bit later. Suffice to say that, like many cases involving what-ifs, 
there is a good chance that had Patrick been in jail, innocent lives would have been spared. Instead of spending their time like most newly reunited couples, Patrick and Samantha decided to embark on a series of gruesome acts, striking fear into the heart of a community. So come with me to January of 2006, when Metro Detroit was terrorized by a crime spree resulting in senseless and horrific violence and torture among a community which was shocked when it learned who was responsible. Following the decision that Patrick wouldn't serve further time on the domestic violence charge, he and Samantha became engaged. To celebrate, on January 10, 2006, they visited the Gibraltar Trade Center in Mount Clemens, where they stole a firearm. Since Patrick could not stay out of trouble, on January 12th, a warrant was issued for his arrest after he failed to attend a hearing on the assault charge. Two days later, a car Patrick was traveling in was pulled over by Michigan State Police in Sanilac County for a traffic violation. Running Patrick's details through the system, the state trooper noted there was a warrant out for Patrick's failure to appear in court. But because Carsonville was outside the 25-mile limit of Chesterfield's jurisdiction, he wasn't arrested, nor did state police contact Chesterfield police. Another missed opportunity they could have prevented what came next. Three weeks later, just before closing time on January 31st, according to court documents, Patrick and Samantha walked into the Mr. Pita sandwich shop in Chesterfield. Patrick ordered some food, then proceeded to point a handgun at the employees and ordered them to lie on the floor. Then he stole four to $600 in cash from the register. Patrick was careful to steal the closed-circuit television tape, shouting to everyone in the store before leaving, Stay in school. Get an education. Two weeks later, the evening before Valentine's Day, Patrick and Samantha went to Dunham's Sporting Goods in Flint. Store employees noticed Patrick perusing the firearms and ammunition on offer for the second time that day. Samantha approached the firearms counter and spoke to employee Jason Ovick. She asked for his help with the treadmills and sporting equipment, so Jason walked her to a different part of the store to show her the products. With Jason distracted, Patrick entered the store manager's office. Brandishing the weapon that he'd stolen from the Gibraltar Trade Center, he pressed it into the manager's back. Patrick told her he was robbing the store. The manager handed him several hundred dollars in cash from the safe, as well as two loaded semi-automatic guns from the firearms case and additional ammunition. Patrick barked at Jason to get into the office, forcing him to remove trigger locks on the guns before Patrick and Samantha fled the scene. And listeners, we can't say how the lovebirds spent Valentine's Day, but on the day after Valentine's Day, Samantha dropped Patrick off at a home on Lemke Street in New Baltimore, Michigan. The residents of this home were a happily married couple, Scott and Melissa Barrels, both age 27. Patrick knew Melissa on a very superficial level. According to a piece in the Times-Herald, she'd worked for the previous six years as a bagger at VG's Food Center, which was a place that Patrick bought groceries. Melissa was 10 weeks pregnant, and she and her husband were excited to meet their baby, which was due in September. According to the Times-Herald, Patrick broke into the home. No one was there. 
but Scott returned home while Patrick was in the house. Melissa was at work, but she called for Scott to pick her up. Prosecutors later claim Patrick threatened Scott at gunpoint, forcing him into the car to drive and pick up Melissa, then come straight back home. And we don't know where Samantha went after she dropped Patrick off at the Barrel's house. But she returned to the house later that day. She would tell police that that evening, Patrick led Scott and Melissa into the bathroom before telling Samantha he was holding the couple hostage. Patrick then pulled Melissa out of the bathroom and choked her until her face turned blue. But Melissa was still alive. Scott, who was still locked in the bathroom, could hear everything, but he was helpless to come to the aid of his wife and unborn child. During the assault, a terrified Melissa begged for the life of her and her baby, sobbing that she was pregnant. Instead of releasing her, once Melissa was choked into unconsciousness, Patrick instructed Samantha to take care of it or finish it. Samantha claimed she placed her hand on Melissa's throat and could still feel a pulse, so she tried not to apply pressure to her neck. Then Patrick took over, placing a bag over Melissa's head and a belt around her neck. He told Samantha to pull on the belt, which she did, but she claimed she didn't pull on it with any force. From the bathroom, Scott was crying out for his wife. He had no idea she was laying dead on the floor of the hallway. Samantha smoked a cigarette after this task was finished. Patrick told her to retrieve a roll of duct tape from his bag. Patrick returned to the bathroom where he used the tape to bind Scott's limbs. Patrick stuffed a sock in Scott's mouth before taping it shut. Then he viciously beat Scott about the head and face with one of the rifles, spattering himself and the bathroom with blood. He told Samantha to get a knife from the kitchen and cut Scott's throat. And listeners, if you believe Samantha's version of events, she reluctantly dragged the knife across Scott's neck in an attempt not to break the skin. Then Patrick instructed Samantha to stay at the house and wait while he drove to a nearby store. Patrick was gone for half an hour and returned carrying an odd combination of items, beer and syringes. If you hoped the couple was done with their monstrous treatment of the expectant parents, you'd be wrong. The Times-Herald revealed that while Scott still had his hands bound, Patrick had him write a note saying he'd taken Melissa to the hospital and would be gone for several days. They stuck this note on the front door of the home in the event anyone came knocking. Patrick also had Scott record a new message on the couple's answering machine to the same effect. Patrick called Melissa's parents, telling them that he was a friend of Scott's and that Melissa had gone to the hospital. Patrick then ordered Samantha to inject Scott, and Scott is still alive, with bleach. Samantha took the syringe, drew up the liquid inside, and stuck it into Scott's ankle, avoiding any veins. Patrick joined in, climbing onto Scott's chest to restrain him with an extension cord, placing a bag over his head and a belt around his neck. Patrick told his girlfriend to place her foot on Scott's head and pull the belt, just like she'd done with Melissa. Patrick put his hands around Scott's neck and choked him to death. By now, it was almost 3.30 a.m., it was February 16th. Scott and Melissa had been tortured for an unbelievable 13 hours. Samantha drove to a Chesterfield CVS store where she purchased more duct tape. According to court documents, the CVS clerk observed Samantha was calm and talked about needing the tape for painting. 
When she returned to the Barrels' home, Samantha helped Patrick clean the crime scene. The couple wrapped Melissa and Scott's bodies in clear plastic, secured them with the tape, and moved them to the rear bedroom of the home where they covered them with a tarp. Before leaving, Patrick and Samantha stole numerous items, including cash, the dead couple's ID, their ATM cards, and a strong box containing the Barrels' banking information. Then they fled the scene in the Barrels' 1996 white Saturn SL2. According to the county prosecutor, Samantha left to take her teenage brother to school, but the couple intended to return to the Barrels' home later, possibly to retrieve the bodies and dispose of them elsewhere by incinerating them. When they left the house, Patrick and Samantha stopped for breakfast before Patrick dropped his girlfriend home. Instead of going inside on what would have been an undoubtedly cold night, Samantha decided to sleep in her mother's car. When she awoke hours later and went inside, her mother's boyfriend thought Samantha seemed out of it, but she explained she'd been babysitting all night. Crawling back into her own bed, she fell asleep. Hours later, Patrick and Samantha returned to the Barrels' home to dispose of Melissa and Scott's bodies. But they saw the property crawling with law enforcement personnel, so they made a quick getaway. They promptly drove the Barrels' Saturn to 8 Mile Road and Gratiot Avenue. They abandoned the vehicle, leaving it running, a real invitation to thieves. And we don't know much about what Patrick and Samantha did in the intervening hours. Back at the Barrels' house, Melissa and Scott's bodies had been discovered around 5.20 p.m. by law enforcement. Police officers also found a critical piece of evidence. Inside the home, Samantha had accidentally dropped the CVS receipt from her purchase. Law enforcement reviewed the footage from the CVS store around this time. Samantha could be clearly seen in the video, but investigators didn't know who she was. According to the Times-Herald, police turned to the media for help. Still images from the video footage were publicly circulated in the hope that a member of the public would recognize the young woman. And they were in luck. A member of the public called in identifying Samantha. When police checked out her background, they connected her with Patrick. Meanwhile, the barrel's vehicle had been spotted. It was no longer on the street where Patrick and Samantha abandoned it. It was now being driven by an African-American couple who found it and attempted to withdraw cash in Detroit using Melissa's ATM card, which had also been left inside the car. When taken into custody, the couple had no idea how the vehicle came to be on the street or what had happened to its occupants. And listeners, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. When we left off, Patrick and Samantha concealed the bodies of Scott and Melissa Barrels. Then they took the couple's car, a Chevy Saturn, and abandoned the running vehicle near 8 Mile and Gratiot on Detroit's east side. With their unpleasant errands complete, they decided they needed a night on the town, but they had sinister motives. Around midnight, they visited a bar on Dort Highway just outside Flint called Club Triangle. While there, a friend of Samantha's named Tara saw the couple. Everything, according to Tara, seemed completely normal. Tara had only known Samantha for about a year, but Samantha seemed like her usual self, relaxed and happy. The teenager was on the dance floor with Patrick and Tara until around 2 a.m. But she and Patrick didn't just have partying in mind. The couple were looking for someone vulnerable enough to take advantage of. Their plan was to become friendly with an older gay man and go home with him. 
The ruse, of course, would include Patrick presenting himself as gay. Eventually, the pair struck up a conversation with 52-year-old Winfield Johnson, who was simply out to innocently enjoy a couple of drinks when he happened across Patrick and Samantha. Winfield Frederick Johnson, known as Fred, was a happily married father of three and grandfather of six. He lived in Vienna Township, north of Flint. Fred invited the couple back to his home to stay, as his wife of 30 years, Beverly, was out of town. The next day, according to court documents, the trio headed out to Frankenmuth in Michigan, where they hung out, did some shopping, and ate Frankenmuth's famous chicken dinner like old friends. But the convivial mood of the day was about to take a turn. At some stage, Patrick and Samantha learned police were looking for them in relation to the Barrels' murders. Back at Fred's house, Patrick and Samantha underwent a crude attempt at disguising themselves. Patrick shaved his head while Samantha dyed her hair and chopped it off. They can't have been thinking too far ahead about keeping a low profile, because instead of going to ground, Patrick and Samantha returned to Club Triangle the next two nights. On the evening of February 17th, a male friend of Samantha's spotted her and Patrick at the bar having a fantastic time, laughing and dancing the night away. When the friend commented on the couple's new and drastic looks, Samantha replied that she and Patrick, quote, needed to change fast. At the club the following night, February 18th, she and Patrick were accompanied by Fred, who appeared to be their new best friend. The trio had a great time partying and hanging out. Samantha and Patrick were still staying at Fred's place, and over the next couple of days, the three of them hung out watching movies. On February 20th, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Patrick and Samantha for the murders of Scott and Melissa Barrels. By the morning of February 21st, things again got ugly. According to the Associated Press, Fred had grown suspicious that his two new, much younger companions were wanted in the deaths of Melissa and Scott, which by now is receiving heavy media coverage. Samantha claimed that around 1 a.m. that morning, she was startled awake by Patrick yelling. As the fog of sleep lifted, she could see her boyfriend pointing a rifle at Fred. Terrified, Fred tried to run, but he was shot twice in the back by Patrick. Incapacitated by the gunshots, Fred managed to make it out the door and into the front yard before he stumbled and fell to the ground. Patrick and Samantha dragged him back in the house. As he had with previous victims, Patrick placed a plastic bag around Fred's head and a belt around his neck. Samantha will later claim that she refused to help him with this. Realizing he'd have to do it himself, Patrick strangled Fred. He told Samantha to get a knife from the kitchen and stab him. Samantha picked up a butter knife, which she claimed she used to only poke at Fred. With their third victim dead on the floor, Patrick had a beer and Samantha smoked a cigarette. They wrapped Fred's body in a tarp and placed it in the rear of his truck where it stayed for the rest of the night. The next day, they cleaned the crime scene, then they jumped in Fred's truck and took off with his body stowed in the back. By now, the bitter winter temperatures had frozen Fred's body solid. Later that same day, February 21st, Samantha called her friend Tara, who they'd run into at Club Triangle a few days earlier. 
Tara was worried because by this time news had broken of the barrel's gruesome deaths and Tara had suspicions that Patrick and Samantha were the ones wanted by police. Samantha told Tara she wanted to hang out. And it's hard to say if Tara actually had a choice in the matter because Patrick and Samantha showed up at her house asking to stash a duffel bag which contained guns in her basement. Tara could tell they'd been drinking. And she told them, look, I've got a job interview at the Comstock Inn in Owasso, and I've got to get ready for my interview. So Tara got in the shower. Meanwhile, Patrick goes back out to the truck to get one of the rifles the couple had stolen from the Dunham store. According to a story in the Times-Herald, Patrick and Samantha intended to remain with Tara. Tara drove Fred's truck to her job interview with Patrick and Samantha as passengers. When they got to the hotel, Patrick and Samantha waited for Tara outside in the parking lot in the truck. Once inside the building, Tara wasted no time calling the police. Law enforcement arrived and surrounded the vehicle, a vehicle that still contained Fred's lifeless body. The couple were arrested on suspicion of murdering Melissa and Scott, with charges for Fred added later. They were taken into custody and transported to the Genesee County Jail. The day of the arrests, Patrick was charged with a range of crimes, including the murders of Melissa, Scott, and Fred, while Samantha was charged with aiding and abetting her boyfriend. You know, we talk about in true crime circles whether or not you should talk to police without an attorney present. After being read her Miranda rights, Samantha exercised her right to remain silent and asked for an attorney. She was taken back to her holding cell, but just after six o'clock that evening, Two police officers arrived in Owasso from the New Baltimore Police Department. Sergeant Charles Esser and Detective Kenneth Stevens had driven the 90 minutes from New Baltimore with the express purpose of interviewing Samantha, despite her asking for an attorney and opting to remain silent. She was again read her Miranda rights, and according to court documents, the sergeant figured he could interview Samantha because he and Stevens were from a different police department. Coincidentally, Sergeant Esser worked the Justin Mello case and was involved in interviewing suspects for that investigation as well. Samantha told the law enforcement officers that she wanted an attorney. The detectives gave her a cigarette break and had her return to her cell. About a half of an hour later, they went back to her cell and asked if she'd been given access to a phone to allow her to contact her attorney. But Samantha didn't have access to a phone. So Detective Stevens offered her a phone and a phone book to both contact her family and an attorney. Samantha was despondent. She said she didn't want to spend the rest of her life in prison and wondered aloud whether she needed an attorney at all in order to tell her side of the story. Sergeant Esser reminded her that they couldn't talk without her attorney present, as per her wishes. Samantha said, well, I can change my mind, can't I? She pointed at Detective Stevens, saying that she would talk to him. Esser and Stevens contacted the prosecutor, who told the officers they could proceed with questioning Samantha. In the interview room, they again read Samantha her Miranda rights. This was the third time she had her Miranda rights read to her in a 24-hour period. She acknowledged that, yeah, she had asked for an attorney previously, but said she was ready to talk because she'd changed her mind. She signed the Miranda waiver. She confessed to her role in all three murders, telling the detectives she loved Patrick. She loved him so much she was willing to do just about anything for him. 
She said she never believed Patrick would harm her until she saw him choking Melissa to death. She stated that once Patrick killed Melissa, Samantha knew she could go to prison for life. But she held out hope that Patrick would help her avoid such a severe sentence. When investigators asked why she stayed with Patrick and did what he told her to do instead of using her opportunities to escape, Samantha said she didn't want to make him angry and risk him hurting her. When asked about the half-hour window when Patrick went to the store before Scott was killed, Samantha said Patrick told her to watch Scott. She also said she didn't know where the phone was and was too shocked to even run next door and alert the neighbors. Samantha denied helping Patrick kill Fred. She said she refused Patrick's demand to strangle Fred after Patrick had shot him and they dragged Fred back inside the house. Six hours later, Samantha wanted to speak with the officers who had made the initial arrest. With a second Miranda waiver in place, Samantha repeated her confession. She then confessed for a third time, this time to Detective Stevens, whom she'd initially confessed to. On February 22nd, Patrick and Samantha were arraigned separately in the Macomb County District Court on charges related to Melissa and Scott's murders. The pair were held without bond. The county prosecutor was unequivocal in his assessment of Samantha's involvement in the robbery and murder spree, saying that she was a willing participant who had every opportunity to leave Patrick. While this is going on, the charges for Fred's murder in Genesee County were still being looked at. Speaking to reporters after Patrick and Samantha's arrest, Genesee County Sheriff Robert Pickle said the couple were most likely motivated by money, drugs, having a good time, and getting away with murder and mayhem. Meanwhile, something with far bigger administrative implications was emerging. You'll recall at the start of today's episode, I mentioned that in mid-January, Patrick had been released from jail despite violating his parole. The problem? is that there is no policy to support such a decision. The Michigan Supreme Court had itself only ruled in 2003 that parolees detained over parole violations were not required to be released if their hearing hadn't been scheduled within 45 days. The Associated Press reported that even the Department of Corrections' own policy did not stipulate what should happen in the event that a hearing wasn't scheduled within the 45-day time frame. The political fallout from this embarrassing bureaucratic oversight was that on February 23rd, according to the Times-Herald, the employee who failed to schedule Patrick's hearing was placed on leave, pending an administrative investigation, along with two managers. The governor of Michigan stepped in, calling for a review of the procedures which led to Patrick's release. On February 28th, legislators held joint hearings in Lansing to investigate departmental procedures which had allowed Patrick to be walking the streets. Things only got worse because they figured out that Patrick was not the only inmate who should not have been released. A staggering 40 other inmates had been set free after not having a hearing scheduled within the required time frame. Aside from this administrative mess, one of the other big questions was whether Patrick and Samantha would be charged with assault with intent to harm a fetus. The couple knew Melissa was pregnant. Under Michigan state law, which included the Unborn Victims Violence Act of 2004, which is also known as Lacey and Connor's Law, the penalty for this offense is life in prison without parole. 
On March 2nd, at their preliminary hearings, Patrick and Samantha were charged with the assault of a pregnant woman causing death to a fetus, identity theft, kidnapping, and car theft. Then they were arraigned in Flint over the murder of Fred Johnson. Patrick laughed during the proceedings when the judge asked Patrick's lawyer if he'd like to discuss setting bond. As with Macomb County, the couple was held without bond over the Genesee County charges. When it came time for trial, the media coverage was intense, especially when it came to the details of Samantha's confessions. It was no wonder reports of the crime spree resorted to the age-old trope of portraying Samantha as the Bonnie Parker of the infamous crime couple, Bonnie and Clyde. Meanwhile, both Patrick and Samantha requested psychiatric evaluations. This was to assess whether they had the cognitive capacity to understand they were committing a crime at the time of the murders, and to determine if they were mentally fit to stand trial. Patrick's evaluation would apply to all three murders, but Samantha's would only apply to the murders of Scott and Melissa. Her defense team requested that her trial be severed from Patrick's in the matter of Fred's murder. In July of 2006, Patrick pleaded guilty to the first-degree murder of Scott and Melissa Barrels, and he would later plead guilty to the first-degree murder of Fred. But Samantha was insistent on going to trial. By the time it started in October, Samantha had backflipped on her confessions, given the circumstances under which they were obtained. Her attorney wanted the confessions suppressed as evidence at trial, arguing that Samantha had been subjected to an improper interrogation. He claimed that Samantha had been coerced by detectives who used psychological intimidation as a tactic to get her talking. Samantha's attorney argued that detectives told Samantha Patrick had not only waived his Miranda rights, but was telling other detectives about the murders. According to Samantha, the officers also commented that an accomplice of Patrick's in a previous offense had got in more trouble by not talking. But the motion to suppress this evidence was denied, with the court determining Samantha initiated the police interviews and was not coerced. Samantha pleaded not guilty. The court heard about the evidence directly implicating her in the Barrels' murders. This included her fingerprints on the duct tape wrapped around the bodies and the blood and bleach found on the clothing she'd worn that night. When Samantha took the stand in her defense, she denied going into Mr. Peta's shop on the evening of January 31st. She testified that she waited outside in her grandmother's van, as per her boyfriend's instructions. She said she had no idea Patrick was going to rob the restaurant, or that he'd even gone through with it until she saw him with a wad of cash later that night when he paid for an expensive dinner. Then when discussing her role in the Dunham's robbery in Flint, Samantha stated she and Patrick went into the store together, where she spoke to a sales assistant, Jason, about treadmills. Samantha claimed she had no knowledge of Patrick robbing the store until they'd left. Samantha had originally confessed to police that Patrick asked her to distract Jason. Now, the court heard Samantha only engaged Jason in conversation because Patrick had led her to believe he would buy her a treadmill. Samantha's testimony then moved to the events surrounding the Barrels' murders. She told the court that in the hours prior, she was fearful of Patrick's behavior. Samantha claimed that after Patrick repeatedly snorted cocaine, he pointed a gun at her, stole her car keys, grabbed, pushed, and hit her, and threatened her life as well as the lives of her family. 
Samantha told the court that after Scott and Melissa were murdered, Patrick continued to threaten her. She claimed she was so worried she just wanted to forget what had happened. This was her reasoning for going to Club Triangle, where she was seen out on the dance floor. Her testimony included claims that during her police interviews, she excluded certain details and misled police as to her level of involvement, only because investigators said they couldn't help unless she said exactly what they wanted her to. Samantha claimed she was so scared of going to prison, she felt she had no choice but to cooperate with detectives, telling the court, I never wanted those people to die. Unfortunately for Samantha, the jury did not accept the allegation that she was coerced into participating by Patrick. On October 20, 2006, she was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder for Scott and Melissa. She was found guilty of one count of first-degree home invasion, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, unlawfully driving a motor vehicle, kidnapping, assault on a pregnant woman intentionally causing miscarriage or stillbirth, and obtaining, possessing, or transferring personal identifying information with the intent to commit identity theft. At Samantha's sentencing, the judge remarked, The English language is devoid of words that can describe the depths of your deplorable behavior. Under Michigan state law, the penalty for a conviction of first-degree murder is life without parole, which is exactly what Samantha received for each count. She also received life for kidnap and assault, 10 to 20 years for home invasion, 2 to 5 years for unlawfully driving an automobile, 2 to 5 years for identity theft, and 2 years for the firearm charge. In total, she received four life terms, including two counts of premeditated murder. She will never be eligible for parole. In April of 2007, for the charges related to Fred Johnson, Samantha pleaded no contest to a charge of second-degree murder, carjacking, and possessing a firearm during a felony. The following month, she was sentenced to 23 to 75 years in prison, with the judge commenting, The man was kind to you, and you killed him. Samantha did file an appeal with the Michigan Court of Appeals regarding her conviction for the second-degree murder of Fred. She based this on several grounds, but the one that received the most attention was the circumstances under which Samantha confessed to police. Samantha argued her confession should not have been admissible evidence, claiming her right to counsel and preventing self-incrimination had been violated under the Fifth Amendment. The Court of Appeals did not agree, saying the way detectives communicated with Samantha at the time was purely to facilitate her contacting an attorney. Samantha pursued the matter in federal court. Over the next several years, there was much back and forth at state and federal level over whether Samantha's original confessions were constitutionally valid. In the end, in December of 2015, the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals determined that even though a suspect may initially invoke their Miranda rights, they are in fact free to change their mind if they initiate the discussion with police. In Samantha's case, the court found there was little evidence Samantha had been interrogated by law enforcement before she waived her right to an attorney. When it comes to the couple's true motives for killing three people on their spree and what they were thinking, listeners, I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions. As of this writing, Patrick Selipak is 43 years old and resides at the Kinross Correctional Facility in the Upper Peninsula. 
Samantha Bachinsky is 35 years old and resides at the Huron Valley Women's Complex in Pittsfield Township. Both are serving life without parole. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. <laughs>